Section 5 of Lectures on Tropical Diseases by Sir Patrick Manson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4, Part 2 Bilharziosis Filariasis. I pass now to the consideration of another set of tropical disease germs, those whose peculiar geographical range and endemicity is determined by the tropical requirements of special species of insects which remove them from the body, nurse them, and finally reimplant them in a fresh human host. Even more complicated than those I have already alluded to are the processes by which the bloodworms and the parasites of malaria pass from man to man. In their case, the intermediary, the mosquito, serves not only as foster mother and medium for developmental change, but also as abstracting and reimplanting agent. The blood of tropical man is liable to be infested by the embryos of at least four distinct species of nematode worms. These embryos are named respectively Filaria nocturna, Filaria diurna, Filaria perstans, and Filaria de Marcai. They have many features in common. Nevertheless, experts can readily distinguish them one from the other. F. nocturna is found pretty well all over the tropics and subtropics. F. diurna is peculiar to West Africa. F. perstans is also an African species, but occurs in Demerara. F. demarcae is an American species, being confined, so far as we know, to certain of the West India Islands and to Demerara. Possibly it occurs in New Guinea and other tropical countries. Of these several blood worms, F. nocturna is the best known, as it is infinitely the most important, as well as the most common. I shall confine my remarks on the blood worms to it. Doubtless the life histories of the other three species, though still very imperfectly known, resemble that of F. nocturna. If you examine microscopically the blood of dogs in certain countries, more especially of South China, in a large proportion of them you will find, sometimes in prodigious numbers, hundreds in every drop, minute, colorless, almost structureless, eel-like, wiggling organisms measuring about one-hundredth of an inch in length and rather less than three-thousandth part of an inch in breadth. If you kill one of these dogs and open its heart, you will find in the right auricle and ventricle, and perhaps extending far into the pulmonary artery, two or more, or even a great bundle of intertwined worms. Unravel this verminous bundle, you will find that the worms appear to be of two kinds, a larger, measuring about a foot in length by about a twelfth of an inch in breadth, and a smaller, measuring about eight inches in length by about a sixteenth of an inch in breadth. You will also find that all the smaller kind are provided with peculiar corkscrew-like tails. The smaller corkscrew-tailed worms are the males. The larger straight-tailed worms are the females. The name of this worm is Valeria imitis. If you select one of the larger or female worms and examine her carefully with the microscope, you will find that her uterus is crammed with young of various stages of development, those near the vagina resembling in every particular the little wriggling organisms you had previously found free in the bloodstream. You conclude that the free wriggling organisms in the blood are the progeny of the parental worms lying in the right side of the heart. 
the relationship is easily established. If you find similar embryo worms, say F. nocturna, in the blood of a man, analogy justifies the inference that these two are the progeny of larger parental worms living and breeding somewhere in the tissues or in some structure more or less intimately connected with the circulation. As a matter of fact, we know that the parental form of F. nocturna lives in the lymphatic trunks of the body and limbs. They have been found there a good many times, and sometimes in considerable numbers, the males and females being generally in close association, perhaps twined about each other, forming a tiny bundle like so many loosely raveled strings or hairs. They are long, three to four inches, and about as thick as a horsehair. They have received the name Filaria bancrofti. They pour their young, F. nocturna, into the lymphatic stream, along which they are carried into the thoracic duct and so into the blood. The free embryos never do any harm, but the parental forms, by obstructing and otherwise damaging the lymphatic trunks, often do a very great deal of damage, giving rise to that large group of tropical diseases known as the elephantoid diseases, and almost certainly to that scourge of many parts of the tropics, endemic elephantiasis. In view of the mischief they work, it becomes a matter not only of scientific interest, but of practical moment, to ascertain the way in which the parasite, that is to say the germ of these diseases, is acquired and spread. Occasionally the embryo filaria, that is to say filaria nocturna, is found in the urine. But this is a comparatively rare occurrence, and only in the somewhat rare disease known as chyluria. And even if the parasite does find its way occasionally into the urine, when found there it is always in a languid and moribund state, and evidently in an uncongenial element. Occasionally it is found in chylus or lymphous discharges from the skin, but these conditions are so exceptional, so rare, that considering the frequency of the parasite in many places, it is in the highest degree improbable that nature should rely on the off chance of such an opportunity to set the young worm on its way to maturity in another human host. How, then, does this germ pass from man to man? In the endemic areas, 10% is not an uncommon proportion of the population to be found affected with filariasis. 30% and even 50% may be affected. In some of the Pacific Islands, the Samoa group, for example, I believe this proportion is exceeded. This being so, the distributing agency must be correspondingly common. It is evident that the embryo cannot escape into the outer world spontaneously or by any effort of its own, for if you regard it attentively under a high power of the microscope, you will find that it is enclosed in a long loose sac in which it can move backwards and forwards, but which it is powerless to quit. It is effectually muzzled by this sac, and therefore absolutely prevented from piercing and so escaping from the vessels. Seeing then that the embryo worm is not extruded from the human host, like Bilharzia, that it cannot escape spontaneously, like the guinea worm embryo, and that to continue its species it must pass from its human host, we are forced to conclude that some extraneous agency comes to its assistance. What may that agency be? A study of the habits of the parasite, 
of the location of its embryos in the human body and of its geographical distribution will help us in our search for this agency select a man in whose blood you have found the young filaria sample his blood from hour to hour counting the little worms in a measured quantity of the blood keep a register of the number of filaria you find in each sample of blood keep on doing this for a week a month a year taking care meanwhile that the man is in good health and that he observes normal habits as regards the hours of sleeping and waking you will very soon satisfy yourself that the filaria exhibits a very definite periodicity as regards its presence in the peripheral circulation you will find that it is present in enormous numbers perhaps three or four hundred per drop at midnight that it is practically absent at midday that it begins to put in its appearance about six or seven in the evening gradually increasing in numbers up to about midnight and gradually decreasing in numbers up to about seven or eight in the morning and that it is almost entirely absent from eight to nine a m till about six or seven p m the question is often asked what becomes of the embryo filaria during its temporary absence from the peripheral circulation during the day is its disappearance attributable to its death or does it retire for the time being to the internal organs the question was answered some years ago a colored man came to london seeking relief from two enormous subfluctuating tumors produced by dilated lymphatics connected with the glands of both groins the tumors were so large and so liable to inflammation that he was practically debarred from earning his living as a sailor this condition of the groin glands is one of the many troubles caused by the filaria the blood of the patient on examination was found to contain vast numbers of the young parasites repeated observation definitely determined that these embryos came into the peripheral circulation about six o'clock in the evening and left it about eight in the morning one morning about eight o'clock that is to say just at the time the filariae were accustomed to retire for the day the poor fellow committed suicide by swallowing a bottle of hydrocyanic acid death was instantaneous the post-mortem examination was made very soon after no embryo filariae could be found in the blood from the peripheral vessels none in the blood from the liver or spleen very few in the kidneys and brain but in the blood expressed from the lungs in sections of the lungs in the aortic blood in blood from the heart and in the vessels of the heart muscle but especially in the lungs they were found in thousands in every drop the worms therefore retire during the day to the lungs and larger blood vessels how it is that they are able to maintain their position there i cannot presume to say but certain it is that by some unknown method they do stem the blood current there is yet another question that is often asked in this connection namely what is it that brings about this singular periodicity why should the worms leave their day haunt and seek the peripheral circulation during the night as regards the first question no satisfactory explanation has so far been forthcoming some have suggested that during sleep the peripheral vessels are dilated and so permit the entrance of the worms in favor of this hypothesis has been adduced the fact 
and it is a fact that if a filarial patient is made to sleep during the day and wake during the night, the periodicity of his parasites is correspondingly inverted. They then come into the peripheral blood during the day and disappear from it during the night. But then how explain the fact that in ordinary circumstances as regards sleeping and waking, the parasites begin to come into the peripheral blood about 6 p.m., that is, some three or four hours before the usual bedtime, and begin to disappear from the circulation soon after midnight, that is, when sleep is soundest, and many hours before the usual time of waking. And again, how explain another fact, namely the periodicity of F. diurna, which is exactly the opposite of F. nocturna. These two specifically distinct embryo filarii resemble each other so closely in size, structure, and movement that it is practically impossible to distinguish them with a microscope, and yet one is a day worm and the other is a night worm. If the vessels were too small to admit F. nocturna during the day, how comes it that they freely admit F. diurna? Another curious difficulty in getting at the explanation of filarial periodicity has cropped up lately. In the case of F. nocturna, as I have mentioned, by changing the hours of sleeping and waking, the periodicity is easily and quickly inverted. But a similar change of the habits of the host has no corresponding effect in inverting the periodicity of F. diurna. You may get the subject of diurna infection to sleep during the day, and keep awake during the night, but in spite of this the parasites continue to disappear from the blood during the night and reappear during the day just as if the patient were observing ordinary habits. Although we cannot indicate the cause, mechanical, chemical, or vital, of filarial periodicity, we may be assured that it is an arrangement in the interest of the parasite. I have said that the filaria is not spontaneously extruded from the body, that it cannot itself affect its escape from the body, but that somehow it must get out of the body, and I inferred from this that some extraneous agency must interfere to remove it. Seeing that the habitat of the filaria is the blood, we inferred that this extraneous agency must be something that naturally abstracts the blood and seeing that the filaria come to the surface of the body, the only situation accessible, during the night only, we are driven to the inference that the abstracting agency must be a blood-eater or blood-sucker of nocturnal habits, and that it operates through the skin. Further, this blood-sucker of nocturnal habits must have a geographical range corresponding to that of the filaria, that is to say, be indigenous to the tropics and subtropics, Reasoning in this way, we are driven to the conclusion that the external agency that abstracts the filaria is the mosquito, or rather, one or more tropical or subtropical species of mosquito. This conclusion can be readily tested by a very simple but very interesting and instructive experiment. Secure the cooperation of some complacent individual in whose blood you have already ascertained that F. nocturna abounds put him to bed under an efficient mosquito net, and let loose on him, about eleven or twelve o'clock at night, a swarm of the common tropical mosquito, Culex fatigans, which you have previously reared from the egg, and which have not previously fed on blood. By next morning the mosquitoes will have fed, and are now gorged with blood, and are clinging to the mosquito netting. 
catch them carefully in wide-mouthed bottles place a little water and a piece of fresh banana in each bottle for food and drink and egg-laying purposes change the banana every day or two keep the bottles in a dark place and in a temperature of about eighty degrees remove one or more mosquitoes daily for dissection or section with a little practice you will be able to make beautiful microscopical preparations from which you can read the story of the life of the filaria in the mosquito as in a book you will be able to trace its evolution from the moment it enters the insect to the stage at which it is ready to leave it and be re-implanted by the mosquito into another human host the first step in this evolutionary process is perhaps the most interesting showing as it does the marvellous adaptiveness of nature and ingenuity if i may use such an expression she exercises in overcoming difficulties and attaining her end i have already pointed out that the young filaria while in the human host is enclosed in a loosely fitting sac in which it can move backwards and forwards with great freedom the sac is much longer than the worm it encloses on close scrutiny with high powers of the microscope you will be able to make out that the blunt or head end of the worm is provided with a short and delicate spine and also with a circlet of hooked lips you can see that both spine and hooklets or rather lips are protractile and retractile the sheath in which the filaria is enclosed is i believe a provision designed to prevent the premature use of this armament on the blood vessels of the human host and the consequent escape of the worm into the tissues where it would be beyond the reach of the friendly mosquito on entering the mosquito's midgut or as it is generally called stomach the first thing the filaria does is to get rid of this muzzling sheath and so uncover its formidable head armature soon after it has been drawn up through the proboscis in consequence of the absorption of a considerable part of the water it contains and the diffusion of the hemoglobin under the action of the digestive juices the blood in the stomach of the mosquito becomes thickened and acquires a viscid consistency the filariae at once perceive the change in the mechanical condition of the medium in which they are swimming they become violently excited and rush backwards and forwards in their enclosing sacs which are now held so to speak by the viscidity of the blood the little animals are evidently making frantic efforts to get out of their sheaths retiring to the tail end of their sheaths ever and anon they rush forward butting the head end with great violence the sheath is no longer carried before the head as it was when in the fluid blood of the human blood vessels it is held by the thickened blood the attempts to escape are renewed again and again with increasing vigour till at last the head end of the sheath gives way and the little worm swims free in the viscid mass at once it steers a straight course for the wall of the mosquito's stomach this it attacks with spine and hooks and quickly piercing it bores its way through within a few hours it has found its way to the thoracic muscles in which it comes to rest between the fibres here it lies for a fortnight or longer undergoing great developmental evolution in the course of ten days to a fortnight or three weeks it acquires an alimentary canal and greatly increases in size when these changes have been effected the now formidable looking worm resumes its travels working its way to the head of the mosquito and finally passing down into the labium or sheath of the proboscis 
In this situation it lies outstretched, patiently waiting for an opportunity to escape. This opportunity comes when the mosquito next proceeds to feed on man. Into the little puncture in the skin which the mosquito makes, the filaria passes by breaking through the delicate membrane that unites the two labellae that form the distal end of the labium, and so once more it returns to a human host. Ultimately, it finds its way to the lymphatic trunks, where the sexes come together and the young are born. These, in their turn, find their way into the circulation and there await their chance of a visit from a mosquito. In this way, the filaria passes from man to man, and in this way the elephantoid diseases are acquired and communicated. The knowledge is a sure and certain guide to efficient prophylaxis. Not less wonderful and practically significant is the story of the malaria parasite, which I shall attempt to narrate in my next lecture. End of chapter 4, part 2